If you would, turn to Hosea chapter 9 as we continue our journey through the book of Hosea. Um, I I have to confess to you up front, this is a hard chapter um, in in that God has some very hard things to say to Israel and thus it's being said to us. And so it's very important that we try to keep it in proper perspective uh, and that we not, we not try to over-extrapolate what's being said and make it a, a universal. And the, the reason, here's why I'm saying this. So Susan and I went through, she was pregnant with our third child when we were moving to Macon, and, uh, and we lost that child. Um, we had something called blighted ovum, which is slightly different than, than, than a miscarriage. And so God is gonna speak of miscarriage as judgment but is that true of every single solitary miscarriage that's ever happened in history? The answer is no. We live in a fallen world, and there are a variety of reasons by which bad things happen to us. So what I don't want you to hear this morning is that God, every time something bad happens to us, to make it a bigger extrapolation, that it is God's judgment falling on us. Now, you may say, yes, but isn't God sovereign? Doesn't he control all things? And isn't somehow even that which is bad that occurs to us, that it does come somehow from his hand? And the answer is yes, in the sense that uh, God doesn't allow things to go further than, than, than they should go. Note Job in the sermon series that we went through on Job. And so I don't, that's a very mysterious thing to me, but what I do know is that God always provides the means of redemption, regardless of the why that which has happened to us is bad. And so we don't wanna miss that, right? The Bible does not end at Hosea chapter nine, which is gonna be a very dark, dark sermon for Israel. It is not a dark sermon for us because we have Christ. And one of the amazing things is that Uh, even as it says in Hosea 14, is that even though he's very angry with them and even though judgment must befall them and even though he has to take away everything from them, including the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the children and generations, that the the purpose of that is to restore them to him and that he will not allow that to go on forever. It's temporary. And that's very important for us to remember I also don't want to uh, over-simplify suffering. It is a very mysterious thing, and so I want to be very careful this morning. Um, And so, uh, and also just remind us, too, of why, in fact, he has to come to some of these extremes, much to Bill's point, because we still today, while we don't say we worship Baal, we worship the same things that Baal represents, prosperity, provision, Food, shelter, clothing, status, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, what we want to get out of this this morning is that God will, he will sometimes, and I, I want to emphasize that because not every time is the removal of your provision because he is judging you, but sometimes he will u- take away both physical and spiritual blessings from us in order to draw us back to him. Now, critical to us understanding that is some presuppositions, right? And what are presuppositions? Those are the things that, those are kind of the foundational principles that help us understand things. One of our very false presuppositions is that we deserve anything, right? That we are entitled to certain things. No, actually, if, if 
We are the fallen beings that the Bible says we are and which every parent can testify. You don't have to teach your kids how to lie, steal, be selfish, hate you, tell you they don't love you, tell you you're fat, whatever it may be. You don't have to teach them that. They don't hear that, but they, they, it just is kind of in their DNA somewhere that, that we are sinners. And so if we are sinners, then what we are deserving of, according to the scriptures, is death, which is the wage of that sin. Now, you may say, I don't think it's fair if I inherited it. Well, then why do you act on it? Why don't you take up the means of grace and live different? Right? So, so note that even though it is something you have inherited, and even though it is something that you act on, the Lord is incredibly gracious to provide each and every one of us with the opportunity to be redeemed and restored to him. That's why we can say that his grace is truly amazing because it is truly undeserved. It's also amazing the links that he goes to, right? How many of you have had somebody cross you and, and you did away with them, not, hopefully not, Right, And you did away with that relationship very quickly. Because you ain't got time for that. Anybody got time for that? Ain't got time to be playing in this world. If if you're not going to live up to my expectations and you're not going to meet my needs the way they ought to be met. Uh-oh, it sounds different when you start saying it like that. But how quickly do we jettison relationships because they don't meet our needs or they somehow take something from us? I'm not telling you that, you're, that, that that's not necessarily healthy sometimes, so please don't hear me wrongly, but note that God bears with us. He truly is slow to anger and long-suffering as he is described or describes himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We are not slow to anger. We are not long-suffering outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. We just aren't. And so I want you to note, before we ever get into this hard sermon, all the good that is God, he's been saying to Israel for at least 170 years. And it's 200 years for the whole of it. He's been saying to them, return to me, I love you. And please remember that what we're going to read is not yet the news. It's what's coming if, it's contingent, if they do not return to him. You understand? So that's critical for us as we read these things because oftentimes it's spoken in what's called the prophetic past perfect as if it has already happened. But the Lord is so gracious to say, but it doesn't have to happen this way. You can use the means of grace to return to me because you were designed to be with me. You were designed to be in relationship with me. We get that when you misuse something, it's obvious that it breaks and doesn't work like it's supposed to. Like I said, try using your MacBook as a hammer or as a stopper for your car when, it, when it's in gear or something else. It ends up not being so hot as a MacBook computer anymore. We are the same. We are designed. We have, as, as theologians have said, we have a hole in our hearts that, is, that longs and longs and longs until it is filled up with the Lord. And so we are designed to be in relationship with him. And that relationship is actually mutually edifying, which is crazy. 
I think so often our picture of heaven is that we're just going to be worshiping him all, all the time. Christopher Hitchens has, I'm going to say it's a great line, but it's not a great line. Can we, you know what I mean? Uh, he's got a great way of saying something that broke my heart. Someone asked him, hey, if heaven were real, would you go? And Christopher Hitchens said, No. I wouldn't go to the equivalent of a spiritual North Korea where there's this tyrannical, jealous leader who demands that you bow to him all day long and do what he wants. No, no thank you. I would just as soon burn in hell. Now, I get it if that's in fact what heaven is. None of us wants to go to the equivalent of a spiritual North Korea, let's be honest. And many of us don't know that it is not the equivalent of a spiritual North Korea, that actually when we get to heaven, God, according to prophecy, is going to sing praise songs over us. Christ is going to testify in the assembly of the things that we've done, Hebrews chapter 2. So there is going to be a call-response aspect to the worship, even in heaven, that will bless us both. And I think we miss that sometimes. That there will be, there will be it's, it's as if uh, because of our becoming more in the image of God, we're joining in the mutual edification that has been Trinitarian eternally. What a gift that that is. And we'll get to enjoy the finest of wines and the richest of meats. It will be a corporeal or a bodily existence that will be a blessing to us. A spiritual North Korea means you starve to death because that's what they're doing right now. And so it's very important that we recognize what we were designed for and that we're being called to. This is not a tyrannical God breathing threats. This is a loving father trying to keep his children from destruction. Do you understand the difference? So remember where the people have come from, the North Kingdom from day one. This is critical and it's had a generational impact and it's gonna play into how we understand this chapter. Remember that Jeroboam I, when he set up the kingdom, immediately denied the Davidic covenant. He wanted nothing to do with the king that God had decided should reign. And remember the second thing that he did, as Robbie described last week, is he set up false worship, those those giant golden calves. Well, if you didn't want to be so daggum obvious, why not do raccoons or some other something so that you wouldn't immediately know, wait a minute, I think we've heard this before. And then he set up false worship in Bethel and Dan. In fact, he set up false worship such that the, the city Bethel, which is the house of God, has been changed to Bethavon, which means house of evil. And each subsequent king that followed him followed in the sin of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat. None of them would turn the other way. And you may say, well, maybe they didn't know, but it was all they knew. No, read the story. Prophet after prophet, situation after situation, God intervened and they said, no, never mind. We'll do our own thing. We will continue, even though they saw that it wasn't good. And remember, part of their struggle was prosperity. They had it good. Why did they need to change, right? And how many of you are the same way? You look at your circumstance and your situation, you're like, well, why do I need to change? Everything's fine. I'm, I'm, I got plenty of money. I mean, my, my kids are healthy. I, I'm, I'm fine. Why, why, do I need to, why do I need discipleship? Why do I need to read the Bible? Why do I pray for what? Let me warn you. 
For you to be disobedient to the things that God has given to us, those means of grace, is to invite God to eventually take something away from you to show you, in fact, why you needed it. Do not presume upon his mercy and his grace. Instead, embrace it, celebrate it, and worship him all the more for it. And remember that that the entire people had no knowledge of God. Remember, that's kind of been the ringing bell throughout the book of Hosea. They have no knowledge of God because the priests were corrupt and the, and the prophets were corrupt and the kings and the princes, everybody's corrupt. And Robbie made a brilliant point last week. He said that it's interesting that we oftentimes throw off what God has called us to, which, by the way, is love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything sums up in that. Those are the two things. We're like, no, I want to I be subject to these hundred other things I can accomplish. I would rather be enslaved to something that's going to make me a miserable failure. That sounds better. Even though you've been given all the gifts necessary to love your neighbor well and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and... You're not expected to do it perfectly, which is why mercy and grace are new every single morning. Amen. And so their lack of understanding and their false worship, even though God has said, I will remove my presence from you. I will tear you apart like a lion. Remember, he came back and said, so that I may heal you and bind you up and have you again as my people. And so that, all that is critical to the context of what he's gonna start saying now because what he's gonna start removing now is the things they're celebrating. Their food, their worship, their children. But all of those things are part of his promises, you remember. Genesis 1 promises that he would always provide for those who bear his image. And other passages confirm that. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you worry about food and clothing when God knows every hair of your head? Less for me and Patrick, but more for some of you. God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows what you need. Why worry about those things and celebrate those things instead? Celebrate the Lord your God who has redeemed you. Store up for yourself true treasure in heaven. Not that you would be of no earthly good, but so that you would actually be of some earthly good. And the other promise is that he would, he would grow his people, the Abrahamic covenant. And so when we forsake the Lord our God, we forsake all that comes with him. You don't get, it's not smorgasbord. It's not like you can say, well, all right, God, I know you offer a lot. I'm gonna go with Abrahamic covenant, like that. Go with uh, provision, yep. Worship, no. no. Devote, no. Prayer, nah. <laughs> no, no, talking to somebody invisible, that's weird. Um, but it's not like that. It all, it's all packaged together. It is all one thing because it all is dependent and interdependent, much like the Trinity, much like us, much like the church. So keep that in mind as we now step into the text. If you would hear the word of the Lord, hard though it may be, it is still the word of the Lord. Rejoice not, O Israel, Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria." 
They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord and their sacrifices shall not please him. It will be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat it shall be defiled for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they're going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snares on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. So God, yet again, is commanding them, stop with the false worship. And their false worship was the worship of Baal. It was that they were celebrating uh, their, 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 their harvest and their, as if it were given from some hand other than the Lord their God. And what's interesting is when he says, you accept a prostitute's wages on every threshing floor, what he's saying is, you are accepting less than what it is actually worth. You are accepting something that is temporary and will go away as opposed to relationship that is eternal. They're accepting a limited commodity. Now, does this not sound familiar to you? How many of us are guilty of worshiping, not Baal, but the great bull on Wall Street? Interesting that there's a bull on Wall Street, anyone? I'm not, I won't get into all that. But how many times have you made decisions about your job and worship can fluctuate? Like if you get offered a great job that requires you not to worship on Sunday, what goes? Oftentimes, it's like, well, I think God's trying to really bless me. I, the worship thing will be there, right? I can find a Saturday night, Sunday service, something, instead of at least considering, and that maybe God is calling you, and it is okay to worship on Saturday night, I think, or Sunday night, but, but maybe it is that you ought to stop and go, but wait, how will that affect the church? How will it affect the local body that my gifts, my presence are no longer there? See, our, part of our problem is we don't recognize how important we are to all this. All of us. That our gathering together to worship is, is miraculous, that it is necessary, that it's beautiful, that it brings blessing to the Lord our God, that we should not choose finance as if God doesn't provide. Susan and I have, 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 have experienced this in, in ways that are just, they're just amazing. When we first moved to, and I've told you this story before, but I think it's worth telling again. When we first moved to Macon, we knew we, we had to be a two-income family. We just knew it and because we knew the numbers and how the numbers work. And we didn't live lavishly. In fact, our house in Macon is exactly half of what our house here costs. And so Susan, who I think is far more employable than I am, uh, couldn't find a job to save her life. 
And the Lord provided a job where I could work on weekends and make more than her. And it was flexible enough where I could be with the kids and I could be at worship and, and all those things. And so God just all the time just kept being good to us. There was a season in which my job was going to pay off my school loan, right? Which was a huge blessing the Lord gives. And then the Lord took away when uh, um, someone came in that was part of a, um, an advisory group and they said, uh-uh, uh-uh, you can't be paying this guy's school loan back. So they took it away. And then it looked like I was going to get the manager's job, which meant I'd have more money and could do, do more things. The Lord kind of gave, and then it was taken away. I wasn't the manager and hung in there to see my boss, who was like Michael Scott on The Office, become a Christian. There's an eternality to that decision that is worth far more than if I'd have been able to pay my school loan off then. And on and on, the Lord blessed Susan with a job that she would work when the kids were at school, and then we move here, take a... a Decent pay cut. And the Lord paid off our school loan when we had less than we had before. I don't know how the math works. Because I haven't cut back on my lattes. <laughs> Susan can tell you to the dime. <laughs> and so, God is good. And what I want to say to you is the thing that we never, we never cut. We never cut what we gave. We never, we never compromise that. We never compromise on worship. We never let work take away from worship and discipleship. We always made those kind of decisions. Now, it took a long time for this to transpire. And it wasn't always easy. And she can tell you there's times where you write the check with gritted teeth. But you honor the Lord always because you know that his promises are true and they hold as we continue in obedience. And so here they were celebrating the gift of the harvest, but yet getting less for it than they should have, right? And so that's what I want us to recognize is there's things that we celebrate and that we compromise worship for that are actually granting us less than what it is actually worth. So be careful. And so he goes on to say that, that as a result of this, that which they do get, that new wine and that bread, is actually not going to satisfy them. They're going to learn the hard way. They're going to learn that that which they are being given is not from Baal. It's actually from the Lord their God, and he can actually make it taste like mourner's bread and bitter wine. How many of you have experienced this? Sin and the thing that you pursued over time, the taste, the excitement, the gift that that sin had given you to start with wanes over time and slowly but surely it loses all luster and flavor. That is a grace of the Lord. And if you were there this morning, I want to say to you that that is, that is part of God's love for you to remove to over time take away the sweetness that sin does offer. It's why sin works, right? Is it actually has something to offer. But what it has to offer you is temporary and will go away and it is a prostitute's wages. It will be costly to you. It will not build you up. I've seen it again and again and again. He goes on to say that not only that, but you will also lose the ability to enjoy the actual means of grace, the offer, the wine offering and the bread offering, all those things. And many of you have experienced this as well. 
that prayer feels like you're just beating your head against a brass sky. The psalmist knows exactly how you feel. David knows exactly how you feel. The prophets know exactly how you feel. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. There are times when you feel like reading the Bible is like just ripping your brain out of your head with a rusty spoon. That's intense, right? And it just, or it just, it's just lackluster. You feel like, I don't, I don't understand any of this as if it was yours to understand all by yourself. And so what do you do in those moments? What do you do when the means of grace have lost their flavor, it seems? And they've become essentially a means of judgment. Do you persevere? Do you seek wise counsel? Do you seek others to pray for you? What do you do? That is the critical moment. We've said it other ways here. When you sin, which way do you run? All of your theology is summed up in that one moment. Everything you believe is summed up right there. I love the way Derek Webb talks about it, though he is drifted post-Christian. He says that there are kind of two, there's our stated beliefs, and then there's our practical beliefs. There's what we say we believe, right? And then there's what we actually do when things happen. So, for instance, if we say, no, I, I think prayer, prayer is amazing. When's the last time you prayed? I, I have no idea. But I'm always leaning on my own understanding, right? I think the Bible is an amazing book. What can you tell me about it? Jesus? Then your stated belief is not your practical belief, and there is, there is a, there's a, critical, a critical gap there. And so my desire is for us as God's people to see that gap closed between stated belief and practical belief. And that's God's desire too, because if what you say you believe is not how you live, then you are not relating to him in a way that he designed us for. This is not about uh, um, legalism. This is not about you being forced to do things. No, it's to recognize actually where true joy comes from. When we work and do as we are designed, that's where true joy comes from. And you may say, well, I tried reading the Bible for like a week. It takes more than that. It's gonna take some effort at times. I can tell you, I get paid to do this. And yet, I have discovered a joy for the word that transcends all of that, right? In my own time, I'm studying the Psalms, not on the church's dime. In my own time, I'm reading through things that are related to Scripture because I found such a hunger and joy there. It's been a fantastic half year so far in the Psalms. I'm going to start over today. And I can't wait to see how it tastes the second time through. And so, so it takes perseverance on our part because we know where the fount is. But there are times when in our disobedience, the Lord has to take those things away from us because we just won't listen. He has to take away the provision. He has to take away the blessing of worship. And so it says that in verse six, he says, behold, they are going away from destruction. So what happens here is famine is a prediction of famine coming into the North Kingdom and they are going to flee. But guess where they're going to get caught up to? Egypt and Assyria, and it's not going to be good. Note what he says about in Assyria, they're gonna have to eat unclean food. Remember the book of Daniel, right? They were forced to eat unclean food with the exception of Daniel and his friends who wisely said, no, we will continue to receive the provision from the Lord's hand. And note what it did for Daniel and his friends. Their continued obedience, even in the food they ate, radically transformed their experience in exile. Right? 
And so they are going to be carried away to the place that they had been delivered from. In fact, it's, an, it's a reverse exodus. All of the gift that they had been given in the presence of the Lord being, being coming through the Red Sea so that they could worship. Remember, what's the point of the whole story? Somebody from the Tuesday morning group, what's the point of the whole story, Patrick? For God to be with his people. Why did Jesus come? For God to be with his people. Why did God give us the word? so that we would know that he wants to be with his people. Why did he give us the spirit? So that we would know he wants to be with his people, right? It's the point of the entire story. And when we, re when, when we reject those means, we reject that idea, the most gracious thing that can happen to us is for us to be on reverse exodus back into exile so that we might be roused to return to the Lord our God. And notice how the language of the curse is here. He says, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver and thorns shall be in their tents. So instead of moving further from the curse into redemption and reconciliation, out of exile, out of the slavery of sin, because of their rejection of the things of the Lord, he will lead them back into exile, back under the full weight of the curse. And that is still a severe mercy. He goes on to say that they basically reject the prophets that are given to them, and they had, right? Jesus talks about this as a prophet understood in his own country, his own town. How many of you have tried to go back to your family and share the gospel, right? Isn't that one of the hardest places in the world? The people who know you the most, and you're trying to tell them you're different than you were? And they're like, yeah, right. I knew you at your worst, and who are you to try to tell us what's true? It's much the same effect. And so Israel is rejecting them, even though they are the watchmen. And it says that they have corrupted themselves as in the day of Gebeah. This is one of the strangest stories in all the Old Testament. Judges 19 through 21. It's a really interesting ending to the book of Judges. It's where the, um, the concubine is, is raped all night long and basically destroyed and they and they cut her up in pieces and start a war. I don't, that's one of the most mysterious stories. It's one of the ones I don't yet fully get my head around. First question when I get to heaven, maybe, after mosquitoes. But, um, but I, and I know the story has some weight to it because it's used here, but it says that you guys are basically just turning yourselves into just these, and, and notice the sexuality aspect of it. Notice, what does our culture talk about more than anything else now? And so he's saying you basically are just reducing yourselves to animals. And so therefore God's punishment will be just. But it makes his grace all the more incomprehensible. That though he will punish them, remember the end of the book. He longs to place his love and affection on his people and be with them and he will not let that judgment keep them from him forever. Listen to what Dwayne Garrett, um, Old Testament scholar, says about this. He says, so Hosea confronts them with the fact that other than, than, other than maintaining a form of ceremonial worship, they have nothing to recommend themselves to God. Even the fig leaf of piety would be stripped away when famine made continuation of the rituals impossible. Even the fig leaf of their piety. So again, it's when we commodify the means of grace, it is nothing more than a fig leaf. It doesn't cover what it should cover. 
You need to understand that, that our actual engaging the means of grace, devotion, prayer, community, worship, all of those things, the Bible itself are intended to be relational. They're intended to change us and turn us into something. Those who bear the image of God, not just merely cover up something. Too many of us spend too much of our time covering up with fig leaves of piety instead of honestly confessing our brokenness and honestly seeking out the redemption that the Lord has so promised to us. So have you experienced God's means of grace as a painful means of judgment or discipline? You ever had that experience? I have. And did you persevere in it or did you give up? Did you seek wise counsel or did you Retreat into yourself. Did you, did you call out to the Lord? Did you, did, you, um, did you continue to come to worship or did you deny? Did you say, all right, Lord, like I did, if you're not gonna give to me, I'm not giving to you. Now, what is that? For those of you who know anything about economics, it's just commodified exchange, Right? If you're not gonna give me what I want, what I think I'm worth, I'm not giving you what you think you want, what you think you're worth. That's not a relationship. That's just gonna produce prostitutes' wages. It's just gonna make you a used object who will be cast aside when your function is done. Is that what you want? No, it's not what we should want. So if you find yourself in that place, fight to get out of it. Use the means of grace. Use those around you to lovingly help you remove uh, or, or move out of that desert wilderness. Repentance is, is a great beginning. Let's turn back to the text and see the conclusion. And this is the really hard part. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. And their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Now, those are hard words. Notice that it begins with God saying that he took delight in the people that he had found. He took great delight in them as if they were a refreshing thing to a traveler who was going through the wilderness, right? That they were like refreshing grapes to him. Do you hear that? That the Lord was and blessed by his people, being with his people. But notice what they did. They turned on him. And he calls to mind Baal 
Peor, which is Numbers 25, yet another very strange story, where they um, worship Baal and engage in this giant sexual festival, and you have the story of Phineas who drives the, the javelin through the two people. And so, very strange story. But yet again, we see sexuality is involved and a rejection of the Lord our God. And so, if we're going to use our sexuality, if we're going to weaponize it against the Lord our God, then what he is going to do is take away the fruit of said sexuality, which is the blessing of children, the Abrahamic covenant. And so he is warning them, you are engaging in not only a dishonoring of me, but a dishonoring of you and the next generation. And so if you're going to worship Baal, what must you do? Sacrifice your children physically or spiritually or both. You do know that part of Baal worship is the sacrifice of children. And if as a people we're willing to sacrifice our children And why would not the Lord our God say, I'm going to protect the next generation by not even bringing them to bear? Now, if you were to say, that's unfair. Let me tell you the culture you live in. How many children, Greg Clemens, were aborted last year? Just under a million. Yeah, not including drug-induced, which would push it somewhere probably a million and a half or more. A culture that has said that a child is not a child in the womb unless it's Beyonce's, right? You guys guys remember that. Don't forget that. In a culture that calls a child in anyone else's womb but Beyonce's not a child, what in the world are we doing? So we have said they're expendable. Now, of the ones who are born, how many are currently in the foster care system? in the United States of America, not to mention worldwide. You do understand there's an orphan crisis worldwide. It's one of the reasons that we support um, Next Ministries, which is Eric Larson, because they are trying to reach what is actually the largest unreached people group in the world, which is the five to 18-year-olds worldwide. And if your mission doesn't engage that, you're actually missing probably the largest portion of the people you could reach. It's one of the reasons that Travis and Laura opened a school because they're trying to reach those who are unwanted. So if we as a culture, not you as an individual, but we as a culture have said, children aren't really, I don't really want them. And when I do want them, I just want them to make me look better. Johnny, I'm only gonna wear that button with your face on it if you score two goals at soccer. Right? I mean, we idol- it's either idolatry or hatred. That's not true of all of you, but what are we doing as a culture? So for us to say to the Lord our God, hey, it's unfair for you to do that to the North Kingdom. That's not fair. No. No, what's unfair is that we who have been given the good gift reject it. Is that we who have been given opportunity to raise the next generation and I'm gonna pause right here and say this. Of my church experience, you guys have been the best, I don't have vast church experience, but the best at um, volunteering for children's ministry. So I'm not really talking to you right now, but I need to say it out loud for those of you who maybe go to other churches. 
but it is insanity. If we care about the next generation, why is the one ministry that we can't find enough people for children's and youth ministry? To say that part of our Christian uh, calling is not generational is insanity. It is patently unbiblical. Now, let me pause here again. Let's hit pause. Let that just kind of drift for a second. Not all of you are called to children's ministry, myself included. Okay. Uh, I, did, I was called, and this is going to make a lot of sense, to middle school youth ministry and frequently go back and teach at times, uh, not here because I care about our kids here too much, but other places. Um, and so, and so we, we, it doesn't, we all have a calling to, to help the next generation, whether it's through, if it, it's your example, how you live, they are watching you. You are being watched more than you know. Um, Amanda shared a story um, the other night about someone who reached out to her and thanked her for when she served way back in children's ministry. And what a gift that was. And Amanda didn't, rem- she was like, I don't remember having that big of an impact, but it did. This young lady remembered that and said so at their wedding. What a gift. You have no idea the impact that you're having on those around us. We have a responsibility to make sure the next generation knows the Lord, our God, the Lord of the Bible, Yahweh, the God of Jesus, the God who keeps his promises, the God who will provide for them. What are you teaching your children about provision just in how you treat money? Your job. What are you teaching your children about sexuality, about how you talk about it? How you, how you express it in your house because you're expressing it one way or the other, either as blessing or curse. So God is saying to them, I will not let you destroy another generation. I'm going to say enough, it stops here. I will dry up your wounds. I will dry up your breasts. And if, even if you do give birth to them, I'll take them from you. That's a hard word, but that is not what he wants. Let me pause here and read again for us. Hosea 14, notice what he wants is, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. That is his desire is to love them freely and to bless them with children in abundance because that is the Abrahamic covenant. With disciples in abundance, church, because that is the Abrahamic covenant, the gospel as Paul refers to it. So if you're going to reject the promise, you can't get mad and say, well, it's not fair when God takes away the blessings of the promise, right? So while these are hard words, they are not the last word. And while it is painful to have Yahweh depart from them and the death that will sweep in behind his departure is agonizing. Is it unfair if they didn't want him there in the first place and told him to go? Especially when he had been screaming for 200 years. How patient is the Lord our God, how kind. And so, what that says to us is that God is enormously gracious because we're here. The North Kingdom did not decide for all of eternity 
that that was the end. Their sin did not keep the gospel from reaching the Gentiles. Even though we read the wrong uh, assurance of pardon, it actually ended up being the right assurance of pardon for what we're actually talking about, that that mystery would come to the Gentiles, that the mystery is that Christ and, and his covenant would fulfill the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant, that missions ought to be our desire. Being on mission ourselves ought to be our desire. If you have questions on your gifting and your desire, let me encourage you. Greg Clemens has um, sent one's network. They have material that he can help you walk through that. You just need to see him uh, and, and see about setting something up because a lot of times we just, we don't know. We haven't, we haven't really thought about what we're passionate about. We have questions, but we don't know what to do with them. He's got some material that can help you arrive at that. Um, and so I wanna encourage you in that. Um, but but it is critical that we recognize that we are all called into this. All of us together, all of us are to use our gifts and what we have to help the next generation, this generation and the next and the next after that, know that the Lord our God loves them and that he longs to be with them. But we gotta know that first. So while he had some hard words to say to them and he's gonna take away and it's gonna be very painful. He will redeem them. It will not have the final word, amen? Your sin, if, if the North Kingdom's sin doesn't have the final word, yours is not going to. Can't tell you how many times as parents we feel like we've messed our children up beyond all possibility. That's just not true. You're not that powerful, amen? You may have done some damage, don't get me wrong. Uh, but, you don't have the final say. And that is amazingly good news. And your bad parenting also doesn't keep you from the Lord your God. Your failures as a student doesn't keep you from the Lord your God. Your failures in terms of your sexuality doesn't keep you from the Lord your God. Your failures in terms of loving your neighbor doesn't keep you from the Lord your God. Your failures in terms of the means of grace doesn't keep you from the Lord your God. But it does call you to return. It does call you to repent and change. And we are to be thinking generationally. So how are you contributing in that? How are we helping the next generation see that repentance is the front door? Humility is, is foundational. Doubt is not the antithesis to faith. Pride is. And that we, when you sin, you should run boldly to the, to the throne of grace to receive everything you need because Christ made the way. Is that what we're teaching the next generation? And that God is faithful and that he provides. If so, how are we doing that? How are we making sure they know this God? Because if we don't, we cannot be upset when they are swept away. We cannot be angry at God for what we have been unwilling to do when he's given us every tool necessary. And so, there is a gravity to all of this. So what is it that we're to learn from Hosea 9? Well, Hosea 9 teaches us that for the purpose of drawing, and that's critical, for the purpose of drawing us back to him, God will sometimes remove the blessings of physical provision for sustenance and worship and a continued lineage in his presence. Listen to what Charles Simeon says, because I think this is important for us to circle back to. There is nothing so essential to our happiness as the divine presence. With that, we may smile at all earthly trials. Without it, 
Not all the universe can satisfy the soul. This is promised to us, the greatest good that can be vouchsafed to us in this world. And the withdrawment of it is threatened as the greatest of all evils. Remember, the whole point of the story is that God longs to be with his people. The whole point of the means of grace is that God wants to be with his people. The whole calling you back to him is he longs to be with you, not because he needs you as some spiritual North Korean tyrant, but because he is our Abba Father, unlike all earthly fathers. Let's pray. Father, <coughs> thank you that you love us enough to take things away from us, that you are willing to endure our insults, our cries of outrage, our silence and prayer, our unwillingness to read your word, our unwillingness to be disciples, our demands to go our own way. Thank you that you endure all of that and yet still call us to repent and return to you and to know you as Abba Father, the good, good Father who gives all good gifts according to his promises. Thank you that you love us so much that you would not let us perish because of our prosperity, that you would not let us perish thinking that we have earned these things by our own hand, that you would not let us perish in our entitlement. Thank you that Jesus endured all that on the cross and rose to newness of life, declaring us not guilty and worthy to be sons and daughters. God, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who is struggling under the weight of the means of grace becoming judgment or under the weight of their prosperity or under the weight of just being spiritually dry, that you would stir them in the spirit to seek community and prayer and wisdom and counsel and that they would persevere in the means of grace. God, thank you that you have blessed us and that we are here, that you didn't let the story end with the sins of people long ago and you're not gonna let it end with the sins of the people of now, but you give us all that we need to cultivate good things in the kingdom that will translate eternally. Help us to do that to your glory and to our good. In Christ's name, amen.